The Hub is a community. Manuscript, book, and print cultures. Stamping problems. You are listening to a podcast by the Trinity Long Room Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. The Hub is a space contemplating Ireland through the community. It's created by Coral The Hub is about impact. The Hub is for everyone. My name is Ruth Barton. Um, I'm head of the School of Creative Arts at Trinity College, and I'm here. I'm the warm-up for the main uh, performers. Um, and so we have our two speakers who are going to present on their research, but we also have a respondent, a first respondent, who's uh, John O'Hagan, Professor John O'Hagan, who's going to uh, say a few words as well. So we have a fairly packed session. We're going to keep it to time. Uh, to allow for what is now a very full room of people to also add in their thoughts, responses, questions, and so on. So I'm going to kick off uh, promptly. So, so um, I just want to uh, rehearse my own um, imposter syndrome in public, rather than as I usually do, but I probably will later anyway if I have a glass of wine at any point. But um, so uh, I don't come from a cultural policy background. First, uh, first confession. Um, I come from a very traditional arts humanities background. Uh, I'm a film studies studies scholar, so I watch a movie, I read a cultural text, I apply the, cri- the critique from the cultural text to the movie, and eventually I have a book. Um, but uh, in the sort of just, uh, should I give it a shot? I applied for funding and successfully got it uh, to the create from the Creative Island program. Uh, to do a um, research, uh, to do research on cultural policy, um, but particularly to look at how careers are constructed in film, drama, TV drama, and theatre. So, um, so that launched me on the cultural sort of, sort of cultural policy path, but it lo- launched me also in understanding how little I knew. Um, so, that the, hence the imposter syndrome. Luckily, uh, uh, John O'Hagan was um, our, our advisor, and he, um, he met with Dennis, who's also here, uh, Dennis Murphy, who we hired as our researcher, and we sat over many um, uh, sort of agonizing meetings as John explained to us that you actually have to have a questionnaire. The questionnaire has to be good. You have to anticipate what the answers are going to be, and then you have to trial your questionnaire. It has to go through an ethics committee. Um, and, and so on, and, and then he guided us you know, even further, until, in fact, we had a questionnaire approved by an ethics committee. And then we sent Dennis out into the field to ask questions, and we had defined that the body of people we were going to be asking questions of would be uh, successful, prominent, you know, we went through various terms, but we had definitions, which John also advised us to have. Uh, so we had quite a limited group of people in the end. And we sent, we sent Dennis out, and, Afterwards, I had a meeting with some, some mates of mine in, in Bristol at UWE uh, who do similar work. And, and they said, how many people is he interviewing? I said, oh, about 80 or so. They said, I, you know, that's absolutely, un, you know, you can't ask somebody to do that. That's slave labour. So anyway, we were quite nice to Dennis after that. But he did interview 80 people. And so we had this, you know, fantastic sort of body of data um, that answered many of our questions. And we, and we wrote this report for Creative Island. And I think it was a good report, Ecology, Ecologies of Cultural Production. But of course, what I mean, this is the sort of point of what I'm saying is, it was one report. And it was, it, you know, what we got critiqued for was the fact that it was, it was, we addressed a very small grouping of people. So we didn't produce a diverse, a diversity of data. We had very focused, very good, high level data, but on a very small group. 
And when I was doing it, when we were doing it, we always understood there'd be more research, there'd be more reports, there'd be more data. But there isn't. Because here's the crux, and this is why we're here. We don't really have um, a cultural policy uh, discipline uh, in our universities in Ireland to speak of. And you know, I'm saying this where we have a large group of students from UCC who are just those people, right? They're just here, just studying, you know, cultural policy. But these cultural policy courses, interestingly for me, have come out of arts management courses. And I do think there is something that there are a number of questions I think at the moment we're asking ourselves uh, here in the hub and in this room is we've got an almost blank slate because we've almost done no research. So how do we start it? So in some sense, we're in a very lucky position because we don't have an entrenched discipline. And on the other hand, though, we have to wheel back and just make up for so much time. And then we have to look forward and say, how are we positioning ourselves? What's our discipline in this country? And um, you know, we're lucky to have Pat Cook here. And I, I read his fantastic book. Um, and uh, in his fantastic book, he was pointing out how the Arts Council of Ireland followed British, the British Arts Council in terms of its policy making, its setup, and so on. So one of the questions without undermining our illustrious guests is, oh, so are we going to follow the British example of cultural policy, or are we going to learn from their mistakes? And I think they're going to tell us that. Um, so luckily there's an answer that I don't have to, I don't have to, I don't have to, um, I don't have to answer myself. Um, but, but, but what we do certainly have to do is have less people like me, feel, you know, with my imposter syndrome, and more people who right from the beginning are studying cultural policy. But then we have to say, why are they studying cultural policy? Is it so that they can get really good jobs in arts management? Or is it so that they can you know, become advocates and, and, and to you know, stand up for culture, however we define it, stand up for arts organizations, however we define it, in the face of, I think, what many of us would be quite you know, critical of government lack of policy in this regard. And as Pat you know, points out in his book, it ended up being the journalists whose job it was to critique government policy, because the academics, you know, we didn't actually say that, but I think that, that was probably the dot, dot, dot. The academics really weren't there. Um, and this, you know, the, you know, all these, these are all questions that I think we need to consider as we launch into uh, you know, the Irish version of uh, cultural policy studies. Um, and and it's sort of one sort of final comment that I found quite, quite sort of, that made me quite hopeful for the, for the future. It's a very small thing. Was it so? I had to learn to write in a different language because fundamentally, if you're, you know, if you're a library-based arts humanities scholar, you write in a certain discursive way as I speak. Um, but if you if you write about cultural policy, you write really more in a kind of sociological way. You know, there's a lot of referencing goes on. Um, they all reference each other. I know why they do because then they get, you know, then the ref comes good, right? Um, but um, but they all reference each other like crazy, uh, and we don't really do that. So there's, and there's also just a different way of writing. And you still have to prove stuff to but, um, but what I did think was, we, we got one you know, joint article out, uh, which uh, John helped us through, um, which went into cultural trends about our research, with John, Dennis, and myself. But then I sat down with Dennis and Stephen, and I said, let's try and get an article into Irish Studies Review. Because Irish Studies Review is the, is the journal for people like me, you know, who read a book or see a play or whatever, study some critical theory, and bang, you've got it. And I went through Irish Studies Review to see was there, were there any other articles on cultural policy and so on. Nothing, right? So I emailed them and I said, look, we've written this article. We'd really like you to publish it. We understand you don't normally publish this kind of thing, but we think you should. 
And I came straight back and said, you're dead right, we should. So <laughs> hopefully they'll publish it, so some of them, the peer reviews may even be the rule as I speak. But they understood that they needed to engage with cultural policy from an Irish studies perspective. So I think there's a really interesting open door here at the moment where we have to think what we want from, from this discipline. How do we position it? You know, do we follow the British model? Do we, um, do we kind of keep on you know, doing some Irish thing of saying, oh, yeah, it'll, come, it'll be all right at the end as we, as we muddle through? Um, or do we go for like, other, you know, other totally different models out there that we're unaware of in France, in Germany, in the Scandinavian countries in America? And should we be looking further? Or should we just like, jump in? Um, so we're taking advice today from our colleagues over the water. And I'm going to hand over to two of them uh, to present their research and to give us their words of wisdom. I'm not going to introduce them because we are on a time and you can all read. <laughs> but they may want to say more about themselves as, as, they, as they go through. So who's going first? Emma, you're going first. Emma's just told me that she's been, that she's been put down as having a PhD and she doesn't. So, oh, no. But um, off you go, Emma. <laughs> I mean, can I go up there or shall I stay here? Whatever you think. Whichever's got my notes up there. Sorry. Thank you so much, Ruth. Thank you. Hi, hello. Um, so um, my name's Emma McDowell. Uh, in, in a nutshell, I'm a researcher at the University of Leeds, uh, not quite a doctor. Um, I've also been working uh, with the team at Centre for Cultural Value in the UK and working with Stephen on this uh, scoping project. And I'm also a senior consultant at the Audience Agency, so I have a lot of hats today. Um, but it's um, absolutely delighted to be here. And thank you, Ruth, for that um, introduction. I think one of the things that you were saying about writing in a different language when we look at the cross-disciplinary conversations about or cross-sector conversations about cultural value is, you know, I was terrible at translation. Um, I did a French degree and I always used to just try and translate word for word. And anyone that can speak more than one language knows that that's not, that's not how languages work. And I think um, that's something that we talk, when we talk about cultural value, um, you know, we could just say, OK, let's, let's kind of translate the same model across international contexts. Um, you know, let's kind of use, use um, definitions that have already been sort of established. And I think there's something that I wanted to kind of start with today, um, kind of zooming back a little bit. So what do we mean? Um, I, it's something I know that we've already been talking about a lot. So some of what I'm going to talk about today is sort of setting the, the kind of research context in which this scoping project sits. Um, I, I know that there'll be lots of ideas that are very familiar to many of you that are building on the work of a lot of people in the room and um, indeed uh, I'm sure we'll continue to have the discussion so please do bear with me um, on that and as I say I'll, I'll be sort of doing the context and then I think Stephen's the main event so I'm the support the support act um, in that sense uh, who will be looking at the kind of preliminary sort of initial findings um, of the, the scoping project um, but I wanted to start with, um, with, a, with a reading, actually, um, not of poetry, uh, but of a bit of literature. I looked at the internet for too long today and started feeling depressed. The worst thing is that I actually think people on there are generally well-meaning and the impulses are right. But our political vocabulary has decayed so deeply and rapidly since the 20th century that most attempts to make sense of our present historical moment turn out to be essentially gibberish. Everyone is understandably attached to particular identity categories, but at the same time, largely unwilling to articulate what those categories consist of, how they came about, and what purposes they service. For this reason, an individual's membership of a particular identity group 
is a question of unsurpassed ethical significance, and a great amount of our discourse is devoted to sorting individuals into their proper groups, which is to say, giving them their proper moral reckoning. So that's not something I wrote, but please forgive me. Uh, I've just finished reading Sally Rooney's latest book, and I could not, uh, I could not resist uh, starting with... I know she's an alumna of Trinity College. Um, I know she would be horrified, probably, uh, about the idea of being a sort of... I'm not suggesting she's a spokesperson for cultural value in Ireland, but she did also come up in a lot of the conversations that we had um, as part of the scoping project. And um, so, as I say, I couldn't really resist. Um, I think these two core ideas for me, um, the idea of kind of the formation of identity and the unwillingness to perhaps dig deeper into our own kind of ideologies and value systems and perhaps also those that inform our cultural behaviours and our cultural diets, but also this kind of what she talks about, the sort of satisfaction or maybe curiosity that we have um, to understand each other, one another, um, through sorting and categorising uh, people. And I suppose that that kind of speaks to many kind of themes around um, how we sort of relate to one another when we, when we talk about and enact each other's cultural value. And one of my favourite ideas that came out of, of the, the conversations that we had about cultural value in Ireland, which I'll talk about in a sec, um, was that we can't have conversations about cultural value without having conversations about identity. And, um, you know, perhaps that's something that, that is, is different to the UK context. And um, I'm not suggesting that that idea is new at all. Of course, the interplay between identity and cultural policy and Irish cultural policy in particular is well documented by scholars such as, um, you know, Anne Kelly, writing in 1989, about that interplay. So I think it's, it's by no means a new idea, but it was just something that, that me coming from a sort of UK perspective um, su surprised me, I suppose. And I think it's kind of useful to reflect on those, those differences um, as we talk about our positionality as both English. I'm a, from a northern post-industrial town like Ben, and Stephen, you're from Manchester, right? So, um, yeah, you're from Manchester? Manchester, yeah, <laughs> got to get that right. Um, but, um, but obviously living working in, in Belfast and Galway, yes, Actually, all over the place. Anyway, but, but our point, I suppose, is that we're coming in with particular kind of, um, you know, our own particular positionality. So to be able to kind of um, just be conscious of the assumptions that we might be making and the kind of the differences um, that might be sort of brought up as a, as a consequence of that. So... Um, but what has this all got to do with uh, what, you know, what we're here to talk about today? Well, um, as I said, I wanted to provide just a really quick kind of... <laughs> I've got some strange images, I'm sorry. A really quick uh, overview and summary of some key ideas for research into cultural value to offer a bit of context. I'm sure there are a lot of people here who uh, you know, know and write about cultural value and cultural policy, so um, please forgive me if I'm talking, uh, going over new old ground. But as I say, I think it's important to, to sort of briefly touch on that kind of where we're coming from in terms of our positionality related to cultural, this, this uh, treacherous ice field that is cultural value. That was Eve this morning, this wicked problem, slippery concept, that's what Ben Ben called it. So uh, um, I wrote those down because I uh, thought they were particularly good. So Julian Merrick, who is um, a cultural policy scholar um, who I really um, enjoy reading about his, and this was a, from, a, from a blog post, he describes two features of 
arts and culture that make them hard to manage from a policy perspective, which may be obvious, but feels to me to be sometimes a little bit underappreciated. So firstly, that arts and culture include both the broadest aspects of human existence and also the most particular. Um, secondly, that culture, on the one hand, you know, it defines us, it, our, our common values and our collective way of life. But at the same time, we also, and we enjoy specific cultural activities and art forms at a matter of individual preference. So we describe this interplay between the broad and the, and the particular, the common, the collective, and the individual. And um, Julian Merrick uses this idea of a double helix. So this kind of idea that um, they're intertwined, I suppose, that they're not mutually exclusive, that they happen often at the same time. The, the, the experiences of the collective and the individual experience you know, are not, as I say, they don't cancel each other out. And this, of course, makes it a, a profoundly challenging area for governments to address. And I'm quite surprised... I find a lot of things quite difficult, but I'm quite surprised at how much we don't just, don't just kind of take a step back and go, yeah, it's actually really, really complex, it's actually really, really difficult. It doesn't mean then that we don't try and understand it and pin it down, and, but I think it's important that we know that it's a moving, shaping, shifting, uh, shifting thing. So, um, and it happens on both micro-contexts and macro-contexts as well. So... Um, I think that's worth thinking of. And I, see, I think we see this tension played out in ideas of cultural democracy. So this idea that value should be spread across, um, we should be listening to you know, uh, the value-making processes and, and impacts of, across a diverse group of people, more diverse researchers, more diverse research methods, more, uh, and ideas you know, that we're kind of looking on behalf of more representative, potentially. Um, that kind of extension of social democracy more, more generally. And I think... Um, I think that's uh, something as well that's come up. Um, ben briefly touched on the, the kind of the policy shift in the UK and the, 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 the thinking behind the let's create strategy and um, the kind of onus on everyday creativity and how it's, it's kind of very much moved, you know, from sort of great art for everyone, potentially more of a democratisation of culture towards a kind of more cultural democracy uh, kind of bent. And um, obviously in the ethos as well, a centre of cultural value, um, I just put that up there just to kind of like tag that in as well because obviously Ben was talking about how um, there is obviously more kind of interest um, from on a policy level, an organisational level, looking at those kind of uh, in, in, uh, individual um, experience based and the sense that we know everyone has culture and it's like the weather, you know, I suppose it's, it's everywhere. Um, and it's a question of sort of, so how can we kind of then have meaningful conversations about whose value we're valuing, I suppose. Um, and of course, I just wanted to put in um, that this is also, there's a rich tradition of cultural democracy in Irish arts policy making as well. And, you know, this idea that cultural democracy is seen as a kind of extension of, uh, so, you know, sort of um, social democracy, rationally based state policy in the arts um, very, I'm, I'm going to touch very briefly on these because I feel like Jeff um, and Ben and Anne both did, um, all did a sort of uh, great job on, on kind of um, touching on these much more eloquently than me, but I just wanted to kind of bring up a few kind of key ideas. Um, <clears throat> obviously, in, our, in the title for the talk, Poetry and Data, we're obviously putting there a little binary. We love a binary, but at the same time, what are we missing when we, when we talk in these terms? And I think... Cultural value research is no different. It loves a binary, intrinsic value versus instrumental value. Um, similarly, um, 
this then creates a sort of tension between providing ro robust research into the arts experience and then you've got this policy requirement for, for comparative data. There's, there's, you know, again, thinking about the sort of key challenges, pressures on publicly funded cultural organisations and funders to provide data on their activities to evidence measurable outcomes and thus justify the investment of state funding. So this is all kind of the literature um, that we've, we've sort of pulled from for this project. And I won't touch too much on this, because again, I feel like we've talked a lot today about you know, what constitutes evidence. And um, one of the key challenges mentioned by Ben, obviously, this morning was you know, methods, what, what, what kind of, are we going to look at kind of rigorous qualitative work alongside uh, qu rigorous quantitative, qual versus quant, another binary there. And this perception, actually, I, I read in your Trinity Long Room Hub policy position paper that which was an interesting idea that the perception that policy is, is quantitative, it's all about like numbers and stuff, is also a barrier for researchers. And I think that's something that um, I perhaps hadn't really kind of considered before. So um, it's, it's, it's not only... Um, so, yeah, so key challenges, what constitutes evidence? So as we've been talking about, qualitative methodologies are often judged on quantitative criteria, so the, the kind of um, replicability, generalizability apparent kind of weaknesses, we talk of qualitative method methods um, ultimately um, are kind of quantitative criteria, so, so can, we, can we unpick those? What do we mean when we talk about um, sort of, the as, as one of the questions asked, the kind of value of small data, for instance? Does it always have to be replicable? Does it always have to be uh, generalisable? Or, or is there kind of uh, value in, in other types of data as well? And Ben's written, and as well as other scholars, about this seemingly intractable hierarchy of knowledge that favours quantification of value over more qualitative and the call for nuanced approaches. And this, yeah, I suppose this kind of obvious point again, uh, that there's no such thing as pure value and in which artistic impact sits, external to and unsullied by its broader social and political context. And yes, as I said, this, this uh, culture value therefore being a kind of shifting uh, concept that we need to think as a situated contextual um, phenomenon or process, perhaps. Um, sorry, I feel like there's a lot of text on these slides. I'm sorry. I was uh, very keen to kind of give a little overview. So um, I'll just kind of briefly touch on these. And um, if you would like the more information, then please um, do let me know. But I think there's something around how then we, we, we research cultural value. We need to think about then what, what, what constitutes so cultural value. So uh, Mayock, Barnett and Fidian all talk about how cultural value is con conferred between arts organisations. Um, this idea that it's part of an institutional process of valuing. Um, and something obviously that's already been mentioned about cultural value is, is both, it, it's kind of culture can be both produced and consumed. And how do the two strands of cultural value research kind of potentially look at both of those, those things rather than, than separately, for instance. Um, obviously, then this we're thinking about kind of how art, the art sector is essentially a kind of more of an ecology, and as we've talked about, the the importance of kind of individual experience. Um, so I suppose I just wanted to give you a kind of sense of, you know, a potted history of kind of where we're coming from essentially when it comes to then looking at the scoping project, um, and in particular um, how then they they sort of relate to the project aims. So essentially, where does that leave us? Well. We essentially started quite a small scoping study, um, essentially to establish current perceptions of and approaches to cultural value in Ireland. Um, we wanted to um, review existing structures for research and delivery, um, and obviously one of the aims of today is an ongoing aim to develop partnerships with 
with key stakeholders for potential uh, future research networks and explore potential research centre models. So again, that question, as Ruth has suggested, um, and others, you know, what, what model are we looking at in the Irish context? Very briefly um, on the methodology, we conducted 90-minute depth interviews. It was felt that we needed some sort of kind of long, uh, sort of rich conversations, back and forth, a lot of kind of round the houses to kind of get a real sense of um, what, what we're sort of talking about. And we did those with, with a selection of key stakeholders and researchers working in public engagement and policy work making uh, within the cultural sector in Ireland. Just to mention, obviously, we are English, so we needed to be very mindful of where we were coming from as that kind of slightly um, sort of a different, a different point of view and had to kind of consider what, what was sort of coming up for us in terms of um, the differences or things that were surprising, things that were interesting, um, and how they kind of then fed back into the ongoing conversations that we had. So um, the finding, the themes and the areas, which, which Stephen will touch on shortly, we found to be very, very rich. And it was, it was very much about kind of mining, I suppose, the rich experience of the people that we were talking to rather than kind of trying to sort of come up with our own sort of assumptions about, about what we felt the answers to be. Um, so in that sense, a sort of point of departure rather than a kind of arrival at um, the answer. So I'm not sure if we can answer fully the question whether or not, like, yes, absolutely do that. It's more a kind of starting point, really, in that sense. So I'm posing future research, more questions than answers. Um, and finally, very briefly, what, what we wanted to explore, what did we talk about? Well, we started with the question, what does cultural value mean to you? Which um, obviously was just a, a very kind of micro and macro contextual conversation. Um, people brought in their individual ideas as well as their professional lives as well, and their kind of research background. So um, that was a really interesting kind of conversations around that. We obviously like, learnt and talked a lot about the Irish policy context, the Irish research context, and how that kind of, they interacted. Um, we obviously developed an, an understanding around how cultural value is understood in research policy and practice and looking at that kind of triangle. Um, we, we tried to kind of gain an understanding of the relationship of the different tiers of cultural policy in, in Ireland and, those, and how they sit in wider influencing contexts. And, as I said before, comparing and contrasting them to recent conversations in the UK and elsewhere as well. So, um, so hopefully that... I'm, I'm sorry, that was a little bit of... I'm trying to get through it because the interesting stuff is what <laughs> Stephen's going to say. Um, but, um, yes, I'll, I'll pass it on over uh, to, to Stephen. <laughs> I need to lift these microphones up a little bit. Maybe a little bit. Yep, cool. Um, right. I'm going to race through this because I'm more interested in hearing what John's got to say in response to it um, and then having Q&A afterwards. So there's quite a lot of information here, so strap in and bear with me uh, and I will just rush through it. Because we're going to talk about poetry or data, and actually we're going to talk an awful lot about data, so I'm going to start with some poetry uh, just in recognition of the context that we are find ourselves in at the moment. And also because when I read this, and this is just a paraphrase, that's not the whole letter, um, it struck me that actually cultural value is one of those things that you can do something about. 
the state of the world if you address it and democratise it and increase the participation in it. Um, and it feels to me that if I was going to sum up this whole presentation in one sentence, it would be about that, um, about that sense of our capacity or the potential in this room to democratise cultural value. Um, equally, in terms of this slightly contentious title, or at least it was in my mind when I came up with it, um, we're not asking you to make a, dis a choice between poetry or data. Um, unlike if we asked you to choose between the Beatles and the Stones, and the correct answer is, of course, the doors. Um, there is no third element here. It's a, it's a false binary, in a sense. We're not asking poetry or data. We're actually saying both, and actually then beginning the process of articulating in what ways, in what quantities, in what context, uh, with what meanings. And just to flag as well, because we're talking about cultural value, we're launching a report uh, on the future of cross-border cooperation later this evening at the Royal Irish Academy. And cultural value was such a theme throughout all of that work. Uh, it feels very, very pertinent and, and resonant to be having this conversation now, we're beginning this conversation uh, now. And just to reiterate, um, what Emma said about our positionality and about being English people doing this research and so on and all of the kind of insecurities that went with that. Um, and I'm not comparing myself to Princess Diana. I'm an academic in precarity, not a candle in the wind, obviously. Um, but one of the very first things that was said to us um, when we began this work um, <laughs> And that kind of guided the, uh, the ethos and our process going forward. So um, a little bit of Diana with my heart today. Um, anyway, so what I'm going to do, partly because really this is a sense of a kind of offering rather than a, a telling, if you like. Um, we're just going to keep very, very top level of lots and lots of different ideas, partly to see what lands or resonates or vexates or makes people furious or whatever, or see what people nod, um, etc. And I'm just basically going to run through uh, all of those with no ranking and no priority and no particular order. So here we go. Um, the first one is that there's a very strong feeling within the conversations we had about vested interests working in the sector to perpetuate a status quo. Um, this is not in any way unique to Ireland because it's a conversation I've had in every single country that I've ever worked in, but it does engender a paradox or a contradiction in the sector when you're thinking about it, which is that the art sector self-identifies as creative and innovative and disruptive, and yet certain elements of it barely ever change over decades. And there's a real contradiction and attention there um, in terms of about how we go about changing things. Um, and then there's a, there's a parallel question around the dialogue and exchange between different institutions and different types of institutions, from universities to funders to government departments and so on. Um, in terms of research into cultural value more generally, a uh, perennially unanswerable question, something that is extremely important but completely underappreciated uh, in the Irish context. Uh, again, it's kind of uh, reflecting back conversations we've had already, questions about language, nomenclature, quantification. Um, <coughs> quite, a, quite an interesting point here about kind of developmental stages and so on is that 
if we had have done it, we'd have just done it slightly badly and failed at a slightly lower level. Um, so I don't think it's a problem that we haven't done it yet, um, which is quite an interesting reflection on that, uh, that kind of where are we up to, where, where are the UK up to. Um, there's a very, very strong sentiment about a lack of strategic functioning and development, the dearth of policy capacity, a lack of policy research in the department, too much project management, um, and a real question about the role of the Arts Council. And again, this isn't, I don't think, unique in any way to Ireland. The, the self-articulation by Arts Councils of their role, whether they're simply administrative funding bodies or development agencies, is often a process of self-styling internally within the organisations, and often they fail to realise that because they do disperse funds and have to have uh, audit and accountability. But it was felt that there was a lack of clarity there around that role, and of course, uh, depending on the role, would have an impact on cultural value. Um, as Ruth articulated in her opening, cultural policy in Ireland has a long road ahead. Um, it's really felt that there's a lack of integration there. Um, this is an interesting point of a policy emphasis was on individual personalities. Good things happen when a minister is a good personality match. Um, it's in Catherine Martin. I barely know anything about the Irish government, but I see pictures of Catherine Martin every day in my social media feed, so that tells you something about the role that she's able to uh, either carve out for herself or, I don't know, maybe she's making hay when this Covid sunshines, I don't know. Um, research on culture is not seen as valuable at all. Uh, qualitative or quantitative data is just not engaged with in a mature way at any level. It's usually a tick box exercise. So this is not representative of all of the conversations that we've had, but it was certainly very strongly expressed by a number of people um, because it begs a number of questions. You, it, you can't articulate the value of data in policy making. You can't articulate evidence-based policy if people just aren't interested in evidence or data uh, in the first place. And data was a very big theme, and slightly contradictory findings in the research as well. Um, some people thought we had too much data, and some people thought we had not enough data. And now, that was partly a question of positionality, I think, because I don't think there is a publicly funded arts organisation in existence that doesn't think it's asked for too much information. Whereas, on the other hand, there's then the sense that that information isn't being properly utilised, and there's also a perspective of different levels and quantities of data and different values of data, whether at a departmental level, an arts council level, uh, or at an organisational level. Um, not just a lack of data, but seemingly no need for data. Um, there was a very big issue, and again, this came out in the, in the cross-border work as well, is that we just don't have enough of a solid understanding of who is consuming the arts in Ireland. And there are surveys, I'm sure some of you need to go and go, but there's, there's a survey, um, which I'll get to in a moment. Um, but there is data and there's data, and this is where the issue of language comes in, uh, and I'll explain a little bit what I mean by that. Um, Policy-led data was the phrase that came out again and again, described as being massively problematic. No interest in data in the department, none whatsoever. They just threw it together to support what argument is constructed. Um, essentially, policy-based evidence-making, what I would call it in terms of from an English perspective, was seen to be endemic 
within the culture of policymaking uh, and the culture of funding bodies. Now, whether this is because, and this is a key point that underlies a lot of this work, and it's been alluded to already, is if you don't think you need to make the case because it's a given, then your approach to what you might call the mechanics of government will be quite different. Because you won't, be, you won't have an urgent need for data if you don't think you need data because you think you've already won the argument because it's self-evident. Okay? So there, there's a clear kind of, I hate to use the word ecology, but <laughs> there's a clear ecology between these different sentiments and these positions in terms of how you understand the administrative bureaucracy of government is different depending on whether you are trying to make an argument or whether you feel your argument's already been won. This is what I'm trying to say. And it permeates everything in terms of these different perspectives uh, and understandings. Um, there was a very clear sense that the UK, and we didn't interrogate whether that meant England or, or the wider UK, was kind of um, a bit further ahead in terms of its understanding of data. Um, and I think obviously we can look at things like the taking part survey, uh, not as being <coughs> paradigmatic examples of how to do things well, but as longitudinal data sets that have been in existence for quite a long period of time. Um, what was really interesting was this last point here. There's a very clear belief that if we had more information about arts funding and who consumed the arts, that it would be good for the sector. That is in direct contradiction to what has happened in every other country I'm aware of on the face of this earth, where when there has been more data and a deeper and richer understanding, it's raised a lot of questions and issues around gender, pay, diversity, class, anything you can think of because of course and, and that's a very good thing and I'll touch on this later um, but there was a very strong sense of going yes if we can just get more data then that will convince government to give us more money um, now that speaks to a very very strong and powerful belief and conviction in where the sector sits and where it sits in the political economy and so on but it is in direct opposition to pretty much the entire evidence base of what has happened elsewhere. So it's a way, and I think that's a cultural difference rather than, a, than anything else. Um, this was really interesting, um, difficult, um, because whilst we all know, um, and many of us in the room teach, about the difficulty of using terms like culture and the arts, and uh, Raymond Williams saying that. Uh, uh, culture is one of the most... What is, why can I never remember this quote whenever I'm stood up in a room full of people? Something like, <laughs> culture is one of the two or three most complex words in the English language. Um, so, people were talking to us about the arts, but the way that they talked about the arts was not the way that I understood the words the arts to mean. And I don't know, or maybe somebody in this room will tell me there's a difference there, but when I teach about or talk about the arts, particularly if it's got a capital A, I'm talking about the subsidised arts sector. I'm talking about a certain cluster of art forms. I'm talking about a tradition within cultural policy. I'm talking about a tradition of arts councils or so on. Um, it became very obvious in these conversations that the arts meant whatever you wanted it to mean. And it was a very mutable term. And I found that quite fascinating, but also quite odd, because when the arts is a stand-in for culture, 
when it's a stand-in for the subsidised arts, when it's a stand-in for the commercial and creative industries, and you move it into whichever typology or definition you want, it becomes, certainly from my academic perspective, very problematic in terms of using the language because you're not defining your terms. Um, and there were, on a number of occasions, references to data on particular surveys, surveys that have come out of the Arts Council in Dublin, surveys from the Arts Council in Belfast, and surveys at the European level, where people said that that was evidence of the vast and popula population engagement in the arts. And that's not true. It's, it's significant evidence of engagement in culture, broadly defined, but not the subsidised arts, which is how I would refer to the arts. So we ended up in a very odd place where people were saying, oh, but the survey data shows that X number of people in Ireland are engaging in the arts. And we were kind of going, mm, no, it doesn't. It shows that X number of people are engaging in culture, as we would define it. Um, so there's a real... I, I, we simply offer that to you as a conundrum because we, it's, it's something that permeates an awful lot of the conversations. Um, and perhaps that also relates to a later point which is about this kind of Sally, uh, ecologies of value and the way that we've begun to talk in the sector about these different kinds of ecologies um, partly through advocacy. Um, the example of Sally Rooney having been funded by the Arts Council, and I think she was at the TV series was on at the time we were doing some of the research, so it was up very, uh, foremost in people's minds. Um, when I teach this, I usually um, use the example of Warhols in a really way that you've kind of got this product that went from page to stage to screen, Hollywood and so on, and you can see how certain products, whether it's Sally Rooney's books or... Uh, Warhorse have kind of gone from one sector to another sector to another sector and you can trace trajectories and you can clearly see uh, ecologies there. But interestingly, in these conversations, it led people to argue that trying to have arts council or publicly subsidised events as an object of academic study or research was not sensible or meaningful, in that you couldn't just look at it in isolation. Um, and that, that, again, struck as a kind of odd, uh, odd sensibility, because there are many examples you can think of there saying, well, you know, we shouldn't look at primary schools because you know, we need to look at the whole education system and you can't look at one thing in isolation. I think you can develop metrics and processes to look at things in isolation. But it's also a question of whether you should, uh, I guess, in that sense. Um, advocacy and rhetoric. Uh, <laughs> Very strong feelings that there simply wasn't enough of an evidence base to be really clear about who was and wasn't engaging in, attending, participating in culture. This goes back to the earlier point about this use of language and either misreadings or misconceptualizations about what certain data was telling us and what certain surveys were uh, and weren't. Uh, kind of giving us in terms of arguments. That really came to the fore, obviously, in the midst of COVID um, in terms of National Campaign for the Arts work, which is fantastic work and fantastically successful work, obviously. Um, there were comments around this about how COVID had actually been a very valuable moment for advocacy for the cultural sector, despite the devastation that COVID uh, 
had kind of reaped upon the sector. But, and this, I bring this up not because I want to knock it in any way, but because it, it, it is the kind of apex of a lot of different narratives and trajectories that were coming through in this work, is that without the arts there would be no music, no books, no TV. It's that phrase, the arts again. Okay. Now, when I see that phrase, without the arts, and I read that, it makes no sense to me. Because if you stop publicly funding music, there'd still be music. Like, Kendrick Lamar would still be putting his new album out if the Arts Council stopped funding their clients. Right? It doesn't make sense in that sense. So you start getting these kind of necessity of certain partial readings or partial understandings of what the language means in certain discourses and certain contexts. Now, obviously, this is an advocacy argument, and it's produced at the moment a crisis, and I understand that uh, in terms of the communications, but it is really symptomatic of how that use of language and that discourse and then the articulation of cultural value started to kind of not make sense, uh, in a way. Um, shifting, slightly. Um, <laughs> obviously, the... Uh, Biggs, the UBI model, uh, was very uppermost in people's minds. But there's some really interesting commentary about this focus on the artist. Uh, and it was really Stig Emma alluded to this in her introduction, because it was in an English context, we've been moving towards this model of cultural democracy, which has this kind of, at its ethos, everybody is an artist. So we were having this conversation going, Arts Council England have produced a big new strategy and everybody's an artist now and it's all about cultural democracy. That, in many ways, doesn't devalue the idea of what artists do, but it increases the sense of value of people engaging and co-creating and participating in art to create a level playing field. Whereas at the same time, we were seeing, or thought we were seeing in Ireland, an elevation of the artist in a particular way that was almost going in exactly the opposite policy direction to what was happening in England. So it was a really fascinating moment. Um, and I mean, that was a kind of reading again of the fact that why would you have artists as getting universal basic income above any other profession, particularly in the context of lockdown and COVID, where we were seeing what was happening to health professionals and teachers and so on. So it was, a, it was perhaps something of a unique historical moment, but this idea uh, of the valorisation of the artist was felt to be very much tied to the foundation of the state. Um, and that went back to these ideas of Lady Gregory, uh, Yeats and so on. Um, and it gave this sense that there was something of, dare I use the word romanticised, kind of view of these things happening uh, in terms of this romanticised sense of uh, artists and poets being fundamentally engaged in the formation of the state. And again, this was one of the moments where I think certainly I was kind of like, God, am I going to stand up in a room full of really experienced Irish practitioners and scholars and say these things and they could potentially look at me and go, and? Like, <laughs> so it's one of those words where you're just going to get someone and go, is this really obvious? Because it's new, inf it's, you know, as a researcher, like, this is new information. And there, but you don't know when to other people, it's like, like, two and two is four. Thanks, Stephen, off you go. Um, so anyway, just to reinforce the idea, I am just firing lots of ideas at you now, and I am going to keep on doing it until the end of this presentation, uh, which I will try and get to reasonably quickly, and then we can have a discussion. Um, 
It's been said before, I'm going to say it again now, cultural value is mutable in different national contexts. And just to add a quote from the research, depending on dominant ideologies and cultural histories. You want me to wind up? I've got loads. Uh, lovely, Stephen, but... <laughs> <laughs> this is typical of the Irish approach to cultural value. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, uh, da, 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 so, national contexts, romantic nostalgia... Uh, Sally Rooney, um, and this idea of national identity really played out a lot um, as being endemic to how both the Irish population but also the Irish state reflecting itself back on itself felt about this role of culture as something that was really intrinsically important in a way that simply isn't in England, which again made us think we were slightly mad. It's like, why are we going, why are we absolutely knocking our pans in to try and prove something that everybody thinks has already been proved? It was like almost going 359 degrees around the circle the wrong way to get back to the point that other people were already at. Um, but national identity was hugely important. Um, a really strong sense that the two nations, we were in very, very different places about understanding value. Um, Ruth's touched on this. Uh, academia was felt to be quite peripheral in it, and it was felt that academics would be there if you needed them to support the argument that you'd already decided you were going to make, rather than actually academics making different arguments or providing challenge or critique uh, in that sense. Um, different ideas about social stratification and cultural consumption. Uh, I really like this. We're never as far removed from cultures. Large sections of population in the UK are high culture in Ireland is not as high. Is a really lovely way of kind of summarising this sense that culture was not highfalutin in the same way that it could be in England and the UK, and it was much more connected to sense of community and, and locality and place and so on, and the kind of lack of formality that goes with that. Um, but even though a lot of our stratification and a lot of our approaches to culture come from the dominance of the class system uh, in England. It was not to say that there isn't very significant and major inequality in the Irish context. It just simply doesn't result from the class or the history of class uh, in England is the same way. Um, I think there's a whole arena there of the kind of, for want of a better phrase, don't shoot me, John, neoliberal economics that we see kind of permeating Irish society, particularly in Dublin at the moment. Uh, this one, really don't know what to make about this. Makers of art in Ireland are privileged and comfortable, relatively comfortable, and they might have self-impoverishment through working in the arts, but their family backgrounds, they're comfortable. It's like these are the sons and the daughters of the wealthy who become self-impoverished through career choices. Um, and it kind of made me think of um, Common People, the pulp song. You know, it's that kind of sense of, we're not really poor, but we like to be poor. Um, Sally Rooney, so we did put the Rooney klaxon in, just so we do Acknowledging Sally whenever she came up, the culture is class performance, which is a really nice way of thinking about uh, some of these things. There is a, nobody used the word bourgeois in all of the conversations, but it would be a really useful shorthand for many of the critiques that were kind of applied to these sensibilities, if you like, that people were uh, attacking. Um, there was a very strong sense that the Arts Council was still hidebound to an old model of democratisation of culture that was no longer relevant. Um, COVID-19 had had really, really significant impact on perceptions of cultural value. But 
had pushed us, with the quote at the bottom there, to a recognition of the wider forms of culture, partly because the department had moved way beyond the Arts Council portfolio in terms of what it was willing to support. We saw that in lots of countries, to supporting nightclubs and uh, commercial concert promoters and so on. Um, but it did push us, and as Emma said, this is not a new true, but it's not been dominant in cultural policy of thinking about cultural democracy. Um, and an idea, I think, that, as I would have probably argue, that cultural democracy and cultural value do have this kind of symbiotic relationship that's not really been explored very much. Um, touched on that before. Um, this is an important point, so just give me one more minute. Um, I'm really intrigued by this. I'm not aware of any specific academic work on it, but if there is some, do let me know. But one of the really fascinating things that data has done in an English context, to my mind, whether it's in the context of audience development or whether it's in the context of race or gender, is it's forced uncomfortable conversations. And it's provided an evidence base where you have to have those conversations because the evidence is there forcing those doors open and forcing the necessity for change. And if you don't have data, it's a lot harder to address inequalities of whatever stripe. And I think data, whilst data has caused us massive problems, it's actually done a huge amount of good in terms of forcing us to address inequality. Now, that is one of the really interesting evolutionary stages where Arts Council here have just produced their equality diversity strategy, but have yet to embark on that journey. And there are lots of clear examples where there could be learning or shared learning or, uh, as we were saying last night, not reinventing the wheel because all those mistakes have already been made. Um, and last but not least, the UK isn't all bad, apparently. I'll take this on trust. Um, because there are certain things that we can share um, that people were saying that we are at least a generation behind, particularly in terms of diversity and inclusion. And what we've seen in, the, in England is that the Arts Council made huge pronouncements and huge promises and developed numbers of strategies about racial diversity in particular that simply haven't been enacted in the ways that they imagined. So there is an awful lot where we go, look, we were there, and just look at the mess we made of it. Yeah. Uh, a kind of appeal for shared learning, if you like. Uh, I'll skip over those. So, no, I won't skip over this one because it's very important, because it's by John. Um, an interesting issue is whether or not the claim collective benefits associated with the high arts are more significant than those associated with traditional and popular culture. Um, that runs through everything, and it's, I think it runs through the work of the sense of cultural value a lot. That, that culturally democratic idea that value is dispersed, value can be articulated in many different ways. It's worth remembering that in many ways as scholars in cultural policy there is nothing new under the sun because brilliant people like John O'Hagan have come and written them before we got that. Um, so, close on some poetry. Um, for every revolution he must at last will his own destruction rooted as he is in the past he sets out to destroy. Um, I'm shocked to discover that I knew this dress was from Toast, which says more about my life than anybody <laughs> needs to know. Um, next steps, ongoing conversation, take the research forward, uh, develop consortium. Uh, we're completely open, and Annie's open, and Ben is open, and Emma's open to lots of conversations about how we uh, might move forward with these conversations. Thank you very much.
thank you very much indeed. And thank you, Stephen, for being um, nice about getting off this platform. And our final to respond to this, I'm very much happy, very happy to invite Jonna Hagen to step up and take the floor. John, are you have you a presentation or a few words? I have it. Uh, I'll explain it. Uh, well, I am a cultural economist. Um, I know this can only fail having been built up so much by Bruce and uh, Stephen. Um, but I have worked in the area for a long time um, and recently did a book. Uh, all of my work has been on Europe and the US, not on Ireland. And uh, we recently did a book on the impact of COVID on the art sector. And the chapter I did was uh, the impact on orchestras. But also we had another book recently on cultural participation in Europe right across the European Union. So uh, they're right, my work goes back a long time. Um, I'm delighted, uh, the presentations that I said were extremely interesting, and uh, I was delighted to see the funding for a project like this in Ireland, uh, it's extremely valuable, and hopefully I can make an input uh, over time. Um, what I want to do is, if I don't know how much time I have, Ruth. Um, I, I think about 10 minutes, I'll okay. So what I'm going to do is, I just was preparing comments last night and I thought I'd go back to this presentation at the University of Glasgow. Uh, and that was based on another article in Cultural Trends. So if anybody wants a copy of that, I can send them to it. So I get two little bits of this to try and keep it uh, to time. Um, the point I'm making here, and I think Stephen made it, is uh, we talk about the type of evidence in a minute, but you cannot be questing money for the art sector uh, without providing some evidence, whatever the nature of that evidence. Um, and um, I suppose going back to what Stephen said, uh, the, the difficult starting point of all of these discussions is how do we define culture, how do we define the arts, as Stephen made clear. Uh, I think the only way around it is actually just say this is how I'm defining it and then go from there. Um, but it, it is a problem always. Um, the other issue is how do we, what do we mean by value? Economists have worked on this for a long time. Nobody as a uh, clear meaning of what we mean by value. So what I want to make a, an attempt at is what this paper did was to try and articulate what values matter in the arts sector. But it applies in every sector funded by the state. What's the value of education? Um, is it the number of pupils? That's not educational output or educational outcomes. Uh, the value of sport? Uh, all of these areas, it's not, people in the arts sector think they're unique. It's, it's not true. The, the value of the police service do you measure it by the number of police or whatever? I mean, at the end of the day, what matters is security, and there's no way of measuring that. But you have to attempt to provide some type of evidence, so that's going to be the theme of what I'm saying. So, um, value for money. Uh, what we mean by value and how we're going to measure it. And I'm much closer, I'm just, sorry I missed this morning, Ben, but I'm much closer to these people than I thought I would be. Um, so uh, we're not going to really have much of a difference. So let me just, I take some of these slides. Um, um, so, whatever way you like it, the arts sector is, the political uh, establishment demands uh, value for money studies, and they're very common in Ireland. And it's understandable, if you're spending public money, you want some type of feedback, some type of evidence on what you're doing. The other point I want to make, though, is the normal metrics are not possible. So, if I was in the arts sector, I'd just put up my hand and say, we cannot really provide quantifiable metrics, but we will try and provide the case for more funding. Uh, and, you know, I've presented some presentations and politicians will get up and talk about we need bed nights and so on. I say, you don't. That's not measuring the benefits of the value of the arts. Um, 
And so what I would argue is, it's more like a court case. You come in with bits of evidence and the others come in at the opposite side. I, I finished the image with a court case. So what you have is a cir circumstantial narrative, uh, other bits of evidence. That's all you have. The idea that you're going to provide convincing quantitative data is a mirage, and uh, it's hard to get people out of that. Um, the other point that's been made, funding agencies, I don't mean to criticise them, but they are concerned with outputs. And I, I'll look at the English Arts Council in a second. All of their measures, their objectives, are actually nothing to do with the societal benefits of the arts. Um, so, again, it's difficult for them because some of these are not measurable, uh, the main important outputs of the arts. The other point I want to make is, I don't know whether um, Emma and Stephen will address that, it's benefit for whom? Is it for the individual or for the society at large? Now, a, an argument that reconnaissance have made, if there's a personal benefit, that should be of no concern to the state, no more than it should be if you enjoy sports or play, enjoy gardening. But what you have to argue is that, no, there are societal benefits that need to be funded by the state. So, and uh, Stephen also said, we're mainly concerned with large areas of public expenditure. That's what this paper is about. So uh, I presented this in Scotland. This is why I have the image here, um, because it, I had done this for Ireland. But identity and social cohesion, it's going beyond the identity that I talked about, because identity leads to social cohesion. Social cohesion leads to social and political stability. Um, and social and political stability is in everybody's interest in society. And I think that's an important characteristic. I don't know whether you read Neil McGregor's book on, Ger on Germany, a huge book. He, he actually wrote the history of Germany through cultural images. It was the most striking thing I've ever read, I think, the way he set up that book. And each chapter he had a cultural image that almost captured that. So it's important. What he was arguing is that um, culture defines a nation, and in particular in the German case. Um, so it's the same for Ireland and Scotland. Uh, so we, Stephen already mentioned, so Joyce Burns, the Hill of Tara, and so on. All these national museums, traditional music. Uh, so these all in some way contribute to identity. Um, and I, I just, what I presented is there was preparation for 1916. Uh, but the point I want to reiterate, identity and social cohesion are linked. So identity is very important, as I said, in, in bringing about that social cohesion. Social cohesion is essential for social and political stability, and stability is essential to everybody's well-being. So that, in my opinion, is a central argument for state funding of the arts. And if you look at, uh, this applies in the Irish case in particular, if you look at regional arts festivals and so on, what they do in terms of social identity. And the other big one I want to concentrate on that almost gets never mentioned is um, the R&D aspect. So this is, when we get funding in the university for um, research, nobody questions how many people read the article, therefore we're not going to get funding. The nature of R&D is that some of the, the R&D works out, others don't. So to use the economist jargon, the social returns from the government investing in this are much better, much greater than the private returns with the researcher, and they should, or it should be funded. So the film, the commercial uh, art sector depends crucially on the subsidised art sector if it's been subsidised in the correct way. And I'll never forget, I was telling, I don't know who, Cameron McIntosh, I had to interview him, I did a paper on the subsidised theatre in England, and uh, he's in the West End, and I thought, he was go I thought the meeting would be over in 10 minutes, I thought he would slam us, the uh, subsidised sector. It was quite the contrary. He said the West End in London would not exist without the subsidised state sector. He said that's where you test old plays, 
that's where you test talent, that's where you test producers. And I've never forgotten that. It was a, so the meeting, he actually asked me out for lunch and it was quite drawn out because I suppose we got off to a very good start. And likewise, you can argue the same, that some of the commercial act successes were built on the test bed of subsidised art sector. That's assuming that the subsidised art sector is actually doing experimental work, innovative work. Uh, but it goes beyond that. The industrial design, I remember reading once saying BMW depends on uh, the drawn designers that have been trained in the subsidised sector. So an awful lot of industrial commercial design spins off the estate sector. Um, um, and then um, the other aspect is that if the subsidised art is free to innovate and criticise society. So the, this is the second important, and I, I'm not going to cover the equity and distribution, but it's important to remember if this is one of the main reasons for state subsidies, it doesn't matter who's attending. Just like with research, it doesn't matter who reads our articles. Once that article leads to a breakthrough, maybe one in 20 articles leads to a breakthrough. So that's the one qualification. The first one is, is linked to co um, inclusiveness and diversity. Because you can't build up a, a, this uh, uh, identity unless there's a broad diversity of population involved in the producing of art, in deciding on what's produced in the arts, and on the consumption side. So I'm going to, the other two we look at is the economic spillover effects. But to me, I plead with you in the arts sector never to talk about the employment of the arts sector creates. Because you put millions into hairdressers, you get the same employment. Employment is never an argument. Direct employment for subsidising the arts or for defending the arts. What is, is the spin-off benefits. So people in this room, some people in this room know how much the benefit, economic benefit to Trinity is of having the Book of Kells. Um, so there are some of these, that's never the, this is the third important argument after the first two. Um, and, um, sorry, I skipped this, um, but so the cultural infrastructure can be a case, an economic case, but the direct employment is irrelevant. And then international prestige is connected to, connect to identity. Um, I don't know, have I have time? Yeah, no, you've grown, John, and actually I'm just fascinated with listening to you, but yeah, you've got a minute. few minutes. Yeah. I, I just took, I, what the paper did, I we, took uh, Finland, Australia, New Zealand and England. Uh, in, and just to see what, how their stated objectives actually linked to the societal benefits that I've just looked at. So look at you, the, what I'm going to argue is that six here could apply to somebody a factor producing yogurt. Uh, it's, it's almost none of them are linked to the societal benefits that I've talked about. Excellence is thriving in the art sector. The same way if you're making uh, yogurt, you want excellence to be in that sector. Um, everyone has the opportunity to consume our yogurt. You don't want anybody excluded from it. Exactly the same as the private sector. Uh, everybody wants to be environmentally friendly. Uh, this is probably the only that the leadership must be diverse and that every child and young person should have access to our yogurt. So it's, I mean, there, there may be plausible objectives, but these apply to a private company as they do to a state agency. So it's surprising. The only country that stood out in linking to what I've been talking about is New Zealand. In fact, two or three of them, they had right there in their objectives. Um, as I said before, all of these could apply to a private organisation. And as I said, there's a much clearer connection, uh, for example, especially in, New sorry, especially in Australia, I beg your pardon, but also in New Zealand. So it was an interesting exercise. This has followed from a value for body study of the Arts Council in Ireland. And I faced some of the problems that Stephen uh, mentioned 
is trying to get them away because most of the report was on measuring bed nights and these sort of things. And it took a long time to get the thinking switched to this. Uh, I'm going to skip this because I don't have time. Um, so I'll come back again. The, I argue, in, in, if you're talking about state funding, the personal or intrinsic benefits of the arts are not relevant. They may be to you as an individual, just like I love gardening. Uh, with no point of state funding. Um, the other argument you have to make, though, is what is relevant is that the rest, there's benefits to the rest of society from subsidising this sector. And that argument can be made, but not using quantitative statistics. It's simply impossible to quantify it. You just can't, you can't quantify the expenditure of the police in terms of Irish people feeling safer as a result of that expenditure. It's almost impossible. So you just put up your hand and say, no, we don't have quantitative measures, but we have circumstantial type of evidence. So as I said here, you need patches of evidence, patches of some arguments, and then maybe some case studies. Um, uh, I, I said before, this is when we were assessing the Irish Arts Council, but uh, as I've already said, Ireland is probably no different, except to New Zealand and Australia, who really do try and link it to these societal benefits, which I've talked about. Um, so how do we provide evidence on these things that I'm talking about? Uh, you can certainly carry out survey work to look at uh, identity and social cohesion. But one thing that struck me is I did a study of the Wexford Opera Festival, and it wasn't, they, they wanted me to look at the bed night benefits. But there was two things that stood out. One is its international prestige. We went through a whole lot of newspaper cuttings. But much more important was the social cohesion it generated in Wexford. There was a huge number of volunteer workers. There was a great sense of pride and belonging to that sector. And we provided that evidence through surveys. But you have to know what you're looking for uh, before you do the survey. Um, it can also track innovation. I mean, the money that comes to us as researchers in university, uh, that must be tracked in some way. It can be done the same for the arts. It's just, just don't be afraid to say this, it, the function of the arts in this particular instance is to innovate and create uh, new types of activity. Uh, you can certainly quantify the tourism magnet, but as I think Stephen would mention, you have to differentiate between the subside sector and people who are coming for the commercial arts. Um, so I would make the final point, the task is not impossible. The sector must, even though you, uh, you rightly reject numbers and quantitative figures, you still have to provide evidence that your sector deserves more money than the health sector. And it's understandable that governments would want that. So in the end of this image, what you're talking about is not science. You're talking about a court case like this, where you are providing evidence, and you're going to have somebody else providing competing evidence. But I suppose the main conclusion I want you to draw from it is it, you, the argument can't be done. But you don't think of it as a science, you think of it much more as the uncertainties of a court case. So, thank you. Thank you very much, sir. Manuscript, book, and print cultures, stamping provenance Languages towards the history of the Time of Year Library. As well as being heard. The Hub is a space. Contemplating Ireland through the communities this created by Coral Sea. The Hub is about impact. The Hub is about impact. The Hub is for everyone. The rise of feminism. Here's to the next 10 years.